again this morning. Father, we praise you because we will confess, I pray, with all honesty that we desperately need you. We need grace and mercy. Father, we acknowledge we don't deserve. That's why it's grace and mercy. We need power because we're weak. But we need forgiveness because we've sinned. Lord, we are people in great need. And we praise you. We praise you, Father, because we don't just need you. We have you in Jesus. The Christ has come. Help us to believe it. Help us to believe that Christ has come and that, Lord, he is coming again. And that he's going to make it all right. Lord, there will not be any hurt that won't be mended. There will not be any pain undone. There will not be any chaos that won't be calmed and placed in your control before Jesus comes again. And so, Lord, I pray that we would trust in Jesus. And, Lord, I do ask that, Father, you'd be with our brothers and sisters throughout this community. Lord, give grace to those churches that are meeting in the different places in this community. Give grace, I pray specifically to Pastor Andrew Carrington, Pastor at First Baptist Church, Port St. John. May he know and love and live and proclaim the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. And may the people of First Baptist, Port St. John, be filled with joy as they see Jesus through faith today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4 as we continue this series of studies. Daniel 4. I was, uh, I was born in 1977. And for some of you, that makes me really young. And some of you, that makes me really old. That means I am definitely middle-aged. I was born in 1977. Here's what else that means. That means that almost all of my childhood memories are set in the 1980s. And I want you to know that I realize that because I was a child and all my memories are set in the 80s, I look back and my thoughts and feelings about that time are purely nostalgic, okay? I don't pretend that the 80s was the pinnacle of existence or health or morality in the world or in the United States of America. But I have a lot of nostalgia about the 80s. And one of the nostalgic feelings that I have about my childhood has to do with my childhood president, Ronald Reagan. Uh, He took office when I was three years old. He was our president until I was 11. And I was just a kid and had no idea about any of the politics I just knew he was my president, and when the tragedy of the space shuttle Challenger occurred, I remember vividly being deeply comforted by his voice. I'll never forget when he said, we'll never forget them, or the last time we saw them this morning as they prepared for their journey and waved goodbye and slipped the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. Even now, as I think back on that speech, it it makes me emotional when I think about it. And there was also something that made my heart beat really fast with boyhood courage and confidence when I heard my president say, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall, right? 
He spoke about that Berlin Wall. I was in sixth grade when that wall came down, and I vividly remember sitting in Mr. Essex's social studies class, looking at my social studies textbook at a picture of the Berlin Wall after it had already fallen down. There I am in class, and my social studies book is telling me about this Berlin Wall that I know had already come crashing down earlier that year. And I vividly remember being the sixth grader, sitting there with pride, thinking, My president helped tear down that wall, the wall of communist rule and all the oppressive regime that this book is talking about. I just had this sense, this feeling of pride and affection as a child over my childhood president. And listen, I want to be very, very clear. You do not need to share my nostalgia over Ronald Reagan, his politics or his personality to be a part of this church But you do have to be my friend. No, I'm kidding. Uh, (laughs) Not at all. There's one reason why I bring that up. And the reason I bring that up is I'm not a kid anymore. I'm a middle-aged man. And it feels like it has been a long, long time since I related to a government leader the way that I related to my childhood president. The political climate is so... Toxic, so partisan, so polarizing. I need you to know as your pastor, I dread election years. I dread this need we all feel to declare which side we're on in a way that makes anyone who disagrees with us seem to be our natural born enemy that isn't welcome in our life and isn't welcome on this place. It seems as if over the last 20 years, my heart has just grown more and more cynical about our government leaders. And here's what I know. I know there are many good, good people who are serving in places of leadership. I just shared that our sheriff's department just gave our House of Hope ministry $61,000. I am not immune to the fact there are good people in positions of leadership, but you need to know, and I need to confess, I have a tendency to feel like nearly every political leader in our country is corrupt and power hungry. And I got to tell you, it doesn't stop there. I am deeply concerned that the evangelical church in America has ceased to be a powerful influence in our nation for the glory of Jesus and the advance of the gospel and is instead seen and become a powerful political pawn for power-hungry politicians. And I say all of that Because I suspect in some regards, in some small ways, I'm not alone in feeling this sense of like disillusionment and discouragement about our government and our government leaders. So the question becomes, how should we as faithful followers of Christ relate to our government leaders? I mean, what should be going on in our hearts when we're so conflicted at times about what's going on in our government. And that's what brings us to our text. Daniel chapter 4 is an amazing insight into how we should relate to the people who are in positions of government authority over us, even when those people are sinful and prideful and corrupt. And before we look at Daniel chapter 4, I want to just give you a quick reminder about what's going on here. Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. He's the king of the world's first global empire of sorts, the Babylonian 
empire. He's a sinful, corrupt, egomaniac, and he took Daniel and Daniel's generation captive when he overthrew the city of Jerusalem and the nation of Israel. Now, here's what that did. It made Nebuchadnezzar Daniel's king. And throughout the book of Daniel, what we've seen to this point is that Daniel and his friends are an example of what people who are filled with faith and fidelity to God Almighty, what they look like as they live faithfully devoted to God as their one true king in the middle of a godless, sinful, pagan kingdom like Babylon. And in chapter 4, God allows the king, Nebuchadnezzar, to lose his mind. Now, we talked about that last Week. It started with a dream that he had that he couldn't figure out, and then he called in some counselors. They couldn't figure the dream out either. So Daniel comes in, and God gave Daniel the ability to interpret that dream. And Daniel tells Neb, hey, listen, man, God's ordained that you're going to lose your mind, and you're going to live like a cow for the next seven years. And the whole point of that bizarre thing was that Nebuchadnezzar would learn that God alone is God in control. He's the one who appoints kings and kingdoms. He's the one who takes down kings and kingdoms. That's the whole point of chapter four. We talked all about that last week. And in the middle of this chapter, guys, this beautiful, beautiful picture emerges as a faithful, God-honoring man stands before his wicked, godless king, the most powerful man in the world, And he shows us how we relate to leaders, even when they've lost their minds. Even when they are so corrupt, they have no more moral compass. Or they're crazy with greed and pride and power. How we as kingdom people relate to them. And I believe there's a word of God for us this morning as we live at times with disillusionment over the work that's going on in many ways in the Various forms of government in our nation. So look with me at Daniel chapter 4. And here we're just going to focus on this exchange between Daniel and his lunatic king, who's a godless pagan man. Verse 19 says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the ends of the whole world, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was uh, food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king." Who've grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation of that dream, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know 
that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. This is the word of God for us this morning, church. And I want us just to see what's happening. Daniel is right here giving the interpretation of the dream we talked about in great length last week. He's giving this interpretation to the king. And just think about who this king is. This is the king who destroyed his nation. This is the king who, quite honestly, probably killed or had his parents killed before he was brought, Daniel and his friends, to exile in Babylon. The king who has put constant pressure over and over to the threat of death that Daniel and his friends would turn their backs on God and adopt the sinful culture of Babylon. That's the man Daniel is talking to and telling this dream's interpretation to. And as Daniel stands face to face with that king, that kind of leader, that kind of man, there are three things in this passage that I want to show you that teach us how a godly, faith-filled person of God's kingdom relates to a godless pagan king and leader. And those three things actually make up our big idea this morning. Here's our big idea for today. Faith-filled people relate to their leaders with confidence, compassion, and conviction. Faith-filled people relate to their leaders with confidence, compassion, and conviction. Now, let me show you how we see each one of those three things laid out in this passage. First, faith-filled people relate to their leaders with confidence in God. Look at verses 24 and 25 again. He says, this is the interpretation, O king. Now, I want you to notice a couple things. I'll highlight them for you. It's a decree of the most high. He doesn't just call him God. He says he's the most high, which has come upon my Lord, the king, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know, till you're thoroughly convinced and learn the lesson that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Do you see it right there? This, these two verses and his whole response is dripping with confidence in God. He refers to God as the most high. Now just think about that. That's inherently saying that God is in higher authority and has greater power. He's the most high. He's stronger and more authoritative than anyone else, including Nebuchadnezzar, right? He's looking at the most powerful man in the world right dead in the eye and he's saying, hey bro, you might be strong, but here's a newsflash. God's more powerful than you. Amen. And the second thing you see is he says, and you're going to lose your mind until you learn the lesson. 
that the Most High, God who's strong and mighty, the Most High is the one who's ruling here. You may think you're in control, Nebuchadnezzar, but God is in control and he's going to teach you until you know that he's in control. He's literally telling the king, the only reason he's the king is because God has made him king and God is going to humble him until he learns that lesson. Do you see it there? Daniel is filled with confidence in the most high God as his true and sovereign king. And friend, let me just tell you, that's how we should relate to the circus of Washington, D.C., right? As a hundred senators pile out of their clown car every session, we need to remember that our God is in control. He's in control of kings and kingdoms. You know what that means? It means we never have to cower in fear, ever. You know why? Because God is in control. He sets up rulers and he removes them. And you know what he does? He accomplishes his purpose in the middle of it all. I haven't shown you this before, and I was saving it for a little bit later in the book. We'll come back to it. But in the book of Daniel, I mean, I'm sorry, in the book of Jeremiah, you find a bunch of prophecies that Jeremiah is given to the nation of Israel that specifically relate to King Nebuchadnezzar and the time of Israel's exile in Babylon. And when you go to the book of Jeremiah, you find that God actually speaks through Jeremiah and he says that God is the one who has set Nebuchadnezzar up as a ruler in the world to overthrow Israel. And he says he did it for a reason. He did it for a reason because Israel had sinned and rebelled against God. God was going to bring in a godless king, a sinful king to rule over them. So God chose a morally corrupt, godless leader to serve his purposes of punishing Israel for their rebellion against him. And church, you need to know, I firmly believe that we have experienced a great deal of that in my lifetime. I not only believe that our nation will be punished by God because we have chosen to elect so many corrupt leaders, I actually believe that God is allowing us to have corrupt leaders because our nation has turned its back on God a long time ago. And we are getting what we as a nation deserve. And as God's working out his plan in the affairs of men, we're called in the middle of that to live with a kind of God confidence that God is accomplishing his good purpose and will take care of those who trust in him. Here's what I didn't want to show you, but I'm going to show you this morning. It's a chapter in Jeremiah, chapter 29 of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is just said in the chapters before this that God has ordained specifically, and he names him by name, Nebuchadnezzar, to come in. And I want to show you what's embedded inside that prophecy. Jeremiah 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon, or when you're there for 70 years in Babylonian exile, I will visit you and I will fulfill, look at this, I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. 
plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. Thus says the Lord. You see that? In the history of most of your lives, I realize that's the first time you've ever seen that verse in its actual context. It's about Daniel and his generation. When God says he has plans for people, do you realize what he's saying? In this instance, here's exactly what he's saying. In the context of the verse that we have on our journals, the saying is given to people to let them know that God has a good plan and it includes 70 years of exile under a godless, sinful king. And I formally want to apologize for ruining all of your future graduation presents that have that verse on them. (laughs) I know the good plans I have for you, graduate, to go four years into exile at a really bad college. Whatever the way it comes across your life, we'll let God determine that. Here's the story. Here's what God's making clear. And here's the context for Daniel. And here's what Daniel knows and sees and will see it unveiled in this very book of Daniel. God makes it very clear in the middle of it all, a godless, pagan, sinful, egomaniacal, lunatic king, God has a purpose, a good plan. Even when he's allowed a crazy king to be in charge, it's all a part of his very good plan for his people. And that's a good word for our country because 99.9% of the people in this country think one of our last two presents is crazy and out of his mind. And in it all, it doesn't matter how you think or what you feel about a president. The reality is we are called to think and feel a certain way about our God. Where we don't fear or panic no matter who's supposedly in charge. We can live with confidence in him. Because he's going to hear our prayers no matter what's going on. And he will show us mercy no matter what's going on. And he will never turn his back on his people no matter what's going on. And he will deliver us in the end. And I just want to give you a really quick application of what it looks like to relate to our leaders with confidence. I want to encourage you to look at the headlines in a whole new way. I want you to look at them with confidence. That God is in control and is working out his good plan for you. As I was working on this sermon, I I just opened up the news app on my phone and I just scrolled through and grabbed a few random or not so random headlines that were right there on my news app. And I want to just look at these headlines with you in a brand new way. Here's a headline from CNBC. New evidence of war crimes in Ukraine. And God is working out his good plan. Did you know that? Here's from Reuters. The Fed makes inflation fight Joe Biden's problem. And God is working out his good plan. CBS News, Trump investigations escalate. And God is working out his good plan. Church, what would it look like if you believed the promise of God so much that you began to read the headlines of today's news 
in light of his promise, he's working out his good plan. I want to ask you this. What's the headline of your life this week? Like if, if your life was a news story, what would the headline be this week? Some of you have family issues. Some of you have health issues. Some of you have financial issues. Some of you have interpersonal issues. Some of you are walking through the deepest, darkest valleys of your life. What would the headline be of your life today? Can I encourage you to read the headlines in a brand new way? No matter what's going on, no matter what the headlines might be, whatever the world might say about you and whatever you might say about yourself, Would you by faith believe the promise of God that whatever the headline is in your life, God is working out his good plan? Because that's the truth of the Bible. Faith-filled people relate to their leaders. They even read their headlines with confidence that God is in control and is working out his good plan. Number two, faith-filled people relate to their leaders with compassion. Look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, that's his Babylonian name, what Nebuchadnezzar called him, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Okay, notice what's going on there. God allows Daniel to understand the truth of the dream. He realizes But the reality is that God is going to take Nebuchadnezzar down and thoughts start flooding into his mind. And it says there that his thoughts alarmed him. That word alarm can sometimes be translated dismay or terror. In other words, he didn't like the thoughts that were going on in his mind. He didn't like to think about what was going to happen to Nebuchadnezzar. He even goes so far as to say at the end there that his hope is that this dream would be for his enemies and not for him. In a minute, we're going to see verse 27 where he personally implores the king to repent so that he might be spared from the disaster and shown mercy. That's called compassion, church. Just think about that for a a moment. This is the man who had terrorized Daniel's country terrorized Daniel's family, terrorized Daniel's nation. He constantly tried to pressure Daniel to abandon his faith and adopt the sinful pagan practices of Babylon. He threatened to kill him on multiple occasions. He was a wicked, wicked man. And if I were Daniel and I heard this news about the king who had killed my parents and taken me captive and threatened my life for the last 30-something years, and I heard God say, I'm going to take him down, I'd say it's about time. he'd be like, Titus, what's the dream mean? I'd say, oh, bro, bro, that's a good one. (laughs) You might even say it's a dream come true, Neb. (laughs) Uh, You're going to get it good. Hold on, I got to tweet this, dude. What's he do? He says, King, I know what's getting ready to happen to you. And I honestly hope it doesn't happen to you. 
Let this be for your enemies. Let this be for your enemies and not for you, king. And in a moment we'll see, he'll say, and I plead with you, please hear my counsel. Hear what I've got to say, king. Please turn. And maybe God will show you mercy. Do you see what he's doing here? He is seeing a man stand in front of him who is going to face the heavy hand of God's wrath over his sin. And he has compassion. He doesn't want to see him destroyed no matter matter what Nebuchadnezzar has done. He wants to see him repent and be spared from God's judgment. And church, I have to tell you, this hit my heart so hard this week. The Holy Spirit confronted me because I have carried a sinful spirit in my own heart. And I need to confess. I have allowed anger and bitterness to well up in my heart toward many of our leaders. I have even held conversations thinking that one day Jesus will come back and they'll get theirs. And the Holy Spirit, on Thursday morning as I was praying over this passage, graciously but firmly pressed on my heart and said, Titus, do you not know? Do you not care? Joe Biden is a man who will stand before God and face his judgment. And Kamala Harris is a woman who will stand before God and face his judgment. And Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell and Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom and Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un and every other leader in this world are people who will stand before God and face his judgment. And our hearts should want something for them personally on that day. And it's that they would come to know Jesus before it's too late. That they would be spared from the wrath of God prepared for our enemy. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 2. We read it a moment ago. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. He says, pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your leaders. What are we praying? What's God's heart for them? What are we called to ask him to do? Well, he tells us in verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Is our president a person? Yes. Are our senators, our governors, our Supreme Court justices, our school board members people? Yes. And he desires how many people to be saved and come to the knowledge of truth? Verse 4. How many of them? Including our leaders? Church, our prayer for our president, our vice president, our governor, no matter when and who they are, for every other leader should match the heart of our heavenly father who desires for all people, including them, to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth about Jesus. This is how it hit my heart this week. Church, the truth is this. 
We do not have the heart of our Father unless we have a heart of compassion for our leaders and truly desire to see them saved by God's grace and spared from God's wrath. So let me ask you this. How's your heart toward your leaders? As you lament the decline of our nation, and as I do as well, the question is, have you lost sight of the fact that our leaders are still people who have souls that will never die and will spend eternity in heaven or hell based solely on how they respond to Jesus? And if you are in Christ The only reason you're not joining anyone in hell is because God is merciful, not because you're good. And so how should we feel about our leaders? Faith-filled people, at least, never lose sight of the fact that Jesus died to save anyone and everyone who will call on him by faith, trusting in his grace. Faith-filled people never forget that God offers mercy to any and all who will trust in Christ. So they live, we live with compassion toward every man, woman, and child, even our leaders, even when they're sinful pagan leaders. And number three. Faith-filled people relate to their leaders with conviction. Verse 27 says this, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel then gets to this point, and I hope you notice there, where he's already delivered the interpretation of the dream. He's already said, here's the message from God, king. And then he kind of transitions, and it's right there in verse 27. He transitions to making his own voice known. Do you see it there? He says, here's what God has said in the dream. Now, I've got some counsel for you, king. I've got something I'm going to encourage you to do. He's making his own voice known. Do you see it there? And here's how he's counseling the king. We know that his heart is motivated by compassion, right? We just saw that. So what does a compassionate man say? What does compassion look like inside of a sinful pagan world? What's he say? He says, repent, break off your sin, practice righteousness, show mercy to the oppressed, and look to God for mercy. You want to talk about a gutsy move. He looks the most powerful man in the world in the eye and tells him with a compassionate, loving heart that he's a sinner and needs to repent. He lives with conviction that sin is wrong and righteousness is right and the mercy of God is our only hope. And church, that's our calling too. When it's time for us to make our voices known, as we live with compassionate hearts, genuinely loving and caring for those who are around us, including our leaders, we're called to live like Daniel. We're called in compassion to compel people to repent 
to call sin what it is, to agree with God that righteousness is always right and sin is always wrong and God's mercy is our only hope. And church, this is a message our, our world and our leaders need to hear. And I wanted to say this plainly for all of us during these days of our lives. We have no right to water down biblical truth in the name of compassion. Mercy doesn't placate people in their sin and let them run headlong into destruction by affirming their rebellion against God and calling it love. That's not what God calls us to do. Murdering unborn babies is sin. And God is calling America to repent and he's calling Christians to mercifully and compassionately make that truth known through whatever voice they have in love with conviction in righteousness. Homosexuality is sin. And God is calling America to repent and he's calling Christians to mercifully and compassionately make that truth known through whatever voice they have, including their vote. Racism is sin. Greed is sin. Materialism is sin. Sexual abuse is sin. Oppressing the poor is sin. Hating our neighbors who disagree with us politically is sin. Engaging in bitter, divisive, corrupting conversation is sin. Exposing children to sexual immorality is sin. Sin is sin. And the judgment of God is coming against sin. And it it is high time, church... That the church of Jesus Christ stops dabbling in partisan politics and starts practicing repentance and calling our world to do the same. It's time that we start living with righteous conviction, not political convenience. It's time that God's people who are called by God's name would humble themselves and repent of our own sin and seek his face in prayer and turn from our wicked ways and call our leaders to do the same. Church, this must be abundantly clear. Democrats and Republicans are not the hope for America. Only Jesus is. Only Jesus is. And faithful, godly people live with that conviction. So how do you relate to leaders who have lost their way, their minds, their moral compass? I'd encourage you to take a page out of a 2,600-year-old book that might as well have been written today by the Spirit of God. Be like Daniel. Live with Confidence in God, compassion toward others, and conviction in righteousness. (laughs) I told you we'd say it because we say it every week, and that's why we need Jesus. We need Jesus because only Jesus can enable us to live like that. Do you remember how Jesus lived before his earthly rulers? I would encourage you, go to the Gospels and see how he stood before Pilate. He stood before Pilate with conviction. 
You have no authority but the authority given you from God. With compassion, he went to the cross to pay for Pilate's sin. With a confidence that God's will would be done. Jesus perfectly lived this out. We need to do more than we can do on our own. So if you hear me say, live like Daniel, you need to know you can't do that apart from Jesus. So are you trusting in Jesus to be a better Daniel in you? That's the promise of the gospel. Would you bow your heads and let's make our prayer this morning. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, right now, would you call on Jesus? Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your sin that you've rebelled against God and by faith, trust in what Jesus has done. He lived a perfect life you failed to live and died a death that you should have died as a payment, a punishment for your own sin. And that he rose again and promises to save in every way we need to be saved, anyone who will call on him. Call on Jesus to save you. Trust in him and ask that he would live in you as you, by faith, live in him. For those of you who are trusting in Jesus, wherever you might be on political engagement, wherever you might be in political affiliation. Would you pray for your heart that by God's grace, he would purify your heart and mind inside of a toxic political climate. Pray that he would build confidence in you, that he is in control and is working out his good plan. Pray for compassion. In particular, pray for those with whom you most deeply disagree and are most inclined to be angry toward or bitter toward or callous. Pray for compassion. You would desire that they'd come to the knowledge of truth and be saved. And pray for conviction. Pray that in a world that is spiraling out of control having fallen off a moral cliff a long time ago that you would be firm and strong seeing and agreeing with God that sin is is still sin that righteousness is always right that repentance is the path back to God and that mercy grace is our only hope. Father, I ask that you would take your word by the power of your spirit, press it into our lives, that no matter where we would be in this crazy political spectrum, 
polarizing, toxic environment that seems to invade every level of our lives, Lord, I pray that righteousness, holiness, humility would mark our lives. Give us confidence in your sovereign power, compassion toward those Jesus desires to save and conviction of kingdom righteousness all the days of our life until Jesus comes again. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.